So today we are going to be looking at blood covenant relationships. Uh, we will be looking at God's covenant with Israel that we read about in this passage. We will be looking at the blood covenant that Yeshua brought his disciples, which includes you and me, into. And we will be looking at what that teaches us about the marriage covenant also. Make some practical applications. So um, how many of you have heard it said that it's not about religion, it's about a relationship with God? How many of you have said that? I've said that. It's, it's like a mantra. And I think it's a pretty good mantra, all things considered. How many of you would agree 100% with that statement? I don't know if there's a right or wrong answer. I'm just curious. Um, I, I would say for the most part I totally agree with that, with that statement, except that when I look at some of the instructions that Yeshua gave us, some of them probably qualify as religious practices. You know, not religion in the bad sense of the word, but religion in the sense of devotion to the Master. Uh, religion in the sense of like having a, a, uh, uh, I would call it like a community culture of faith. So I definitely see that there. I think sometimes that statement, like I would agree with that statement, it is about relationship with God, and out of that relationship comes whatever religious practice you have, hopefully if it's Bible-based. But sometimes I don't, like, I, I, I would have to define the word relationship. Because in the West, I think we have a different idea of relationship than, let's say, what there was a couple thousand years ago amongst the people who wrote the Holy Scriptures like Moses and then Yeshua's apostles. In the ancient Middle East, for instance, often if you entered into a relationship with someone, it was a lot more than just like going out for coffee, chatting a bit, uh, something like that. It was definitely more than just a casual dating relationship. The idea of relationship in like the context of the scriptures was like really hardcore. Like you're talking about entering into a blood covenant with somebody. That's the kind of relationship that God is offering to your neighbors, your co-workers, everybody in the world. That's the kind of relationship that we've entered to him with. So it's not just like a casual dating relationship or I go out for coffee with Jesus every now and then relationship. Although, you know, that's great. You should date your Savior. You should go out for coffee with him if you drink coffee. And, um, but it's more than that, right? It's a little, it's, it's more hardcore, it's deeper. So we're going to be looking at that together here. Um, in this passage, we saw an example of a nation entering into a blood covenant with a deity. It's a, it was a really cool ritual, actually. And um, as a community, like, we are primarily a community of disciples gathered around Yeshua, right? He, he is the, he's at the core of who we are. We're all about following him. So I would definitely say we are a new covenant community. At the same time, there's a lot to learn from the previous covenants of God and what they teach us about the covenant that we have with Yeshua, our Savior. So that's what we're going to be uh, looking at here today. We're going to be looking at God's covenant with Israel, and then our covenant with Yeshua, and then the, the marriage uh, relationship. Um, actually, something that sparked this talk is Genevieve's brother Stephen is engaged right now to a girl named Leisha, right Genevieve? And they're going to be getting married. And so he messaged me this week on Facebook. And he said, okay, so the ketubah thing, like the marriage document, where's that in scripture? What can you tell me about that? So I started explaining to him how basically the whole concept of a ketubah or marriage document is based on this passage and how God entered into a covenant with Israel and, then he, and, and they put it in writing. And I was like, hey, that's kind of cool. This is exactly where we are in the readings. So I, I, I sat down yesterday to start reading and it just jumped off the page at me. Like, we've got to talk about covenant today. So that's what we're going to be uh, talking about. So this is like, I, I think I could say for Stephen and Alicia, like, this, this talks for you. 
Um, I, you guys are going to love me for this. I, I, I was preparing this talk, and it hit six pages. And generally, I can do about a page in 15 minutes. And I was like, hour and a half. So I split it into two talks. So we're going to do part of it this week and part of it next week. Did you guys love me for that? I'm learning. It's not going to be like an hour and a half long marathon. So I, I, I really feel good about that. I, that I had that insight to split it up. Anyway, um, so like in these talks, these two talks, we're going to be looking at seven strands. I would call it seven strands that make like the marriage covenant rope or cord. If you can imagine the marriage covenant being like a multi-stranded cord, like I, I'm sure you've seen if you just have like a single strand, you can snap the thing. But when you get a cord and it has multiple strands all woven and twisted together, it, it develops like an exponential degree of strength. It's really hard to snap that thing. Unless you're Samson. And um, that's what a lot with the marriage covenant is. There are these multiple like uh, threads running through it. So we are going to be looking at three of those threads today. And then the other four uh, next, next Saturday, God willing. So we will be looking. This is how we're going to do it. We're going to look at one of these threads in this passage in Exodus. Then we're going to look at what it tells us about our covenant with Yeshua. We're going to try and think of some passages where Yeshua said things that kind of uh, like correlated with, with um, that particular thread. And then we'll talk about some practical applications, for instance, in the marriage covenant. So the first thing we see in this passage is God, the hero, sweeps into Egypt, rescues the fair maiden, brings her out to the wilderness, and he proposes to her. In uh, Exodus chapter 19... He, it's actually kind of funny, you know, like in school, if let's say like this girl likes this guy, instead of just going to the guy and being like, I like you, the girl will like send her friend and be like, or maybe, or maybe the girl will send her friend to the guy's friend, right? And they kind of line something up. That's like a little juvenile picture of what a mediator is, right? And it's kind of cool because the Almighty actually uses a mediator like Moses to be like, okay, so this is what you're going to tell them. And then he goes down the mountain and then he tells them what, uh, what God told him. And then they tell him something and then he goes back up the mountain and then he tells it to God. It's uh, kind of neat how that works. Maybe it's a picture of Yeshua too somehow. I'll leave that as a, as a question for you to think about later. But definitely we, we see this proposal. Uh, Exodus chapter 19, verses, five and, verses 4 to 6. He says, you, you saw what I did to the Egyptians, how I brought you here. And um, this is the deal. Like, if you'll, if you'll listen to my voice, and if you'll guard this covenant relationship that I'm offering you, then this is what you'll be. You'll be like my special treasure. You'll be a kingdom of priests to me. And uh, that was essentially his proposal. And Moses, his best friend, went down the mountain, told it to the girl. The girl said, yes! And Moses went back up the mountain. I don't know, I, I proposed to Genevieve face-to-face. -face. I admit, I didn't use a mediator to propose. That would be kind of interesting to use a mediator, but that's what happened in, uh, in this scenario. So you basically, you could say that like Yahweh, in proposing, he stated his intentions, and he gave her a choice, which is very gentlemanly. There was no coercion involved. He, he sent Moses and he said, if you want to enter into this relationship, then let's do it. And he was very upfront about what his intentions were, where he wanted to go with the relationship. That's a great thing to do if, like, let's say you're a young single guy and you have your eye on a girl. Like, be really upfront about where you want this thing to go. 
what your intentions are. In fact, it's really smart even to go and talk to the girl's dad first and talk to him about what your intentions are. I would say that's like something we could learn from how God does it. And if God does it it's a certain way, it's probably a good way to do it. So let me ask you, um, in terms of our uh, covenant relationship with Yeshua, where, where in the Gospels would you say Yeshua proposed to, let's say, his individual disciples or his disciples as a community? You can just shout out some answers. Now, when he called them and said, follow me. That was the start of a real covenant relationship. Maybe that would be like asking them out on the first date, eh? You generally don't propose, like, first thing when you see a person that you're interested in. Right? I'll repeat that just for our live streaming friends. But yeah, so when he, when he asked them, who do you say that I am? And they said, you are the Mashiach. That was a definite, yeah. Or, or when he said, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And a lot of people fell away. They were offended at that. And then he said, are you going to go too? And they said, nope, we're sticking with you. I'm totally paraphrasing you. Sorry, John. Okay. He had that last Passover meal. What did he do? He, uh, he offered them a cup. And he said, this cup is what? The new covenant in my blood. He offered them a piece of bread and he said, this is my body. Like he offered them his body. Yeah. Frankly, I don't know. I don't know what, if you could pinpoint a proposal, but those are definitely like milestones in the relationship between Yeshua, our master, and uh, the, the community of his disciples. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think that was probably the first covenant between God and his people was with Abraham in Genesis 15. Absolutely. And I mean, you can see some distinct parallels between Genesis 15 and the covenant there and uh, this passage too, where God brings the whole nation into a covenant. You know, the, it's like sixth or seventh generation descendants of Abraham, I think. So that's the first thing we see as a proposal. Uh, the second thing we see is promises made. And uh, I, I see seven, like, seven kind of like um, threads of promises in this passage. Um, you were probably watching for them as we read through it. Um, they're all clumped together at the end of Exodus chapter 23, specifically Exodus 23, verses 20 to 33. And uh, I'll sum them up for you, and then we'll look at each one in some depth. I see God here promising Israel his presence, his protection, his loyalty, his leadership, his provision, his care, and a home. And uh, we'll break down each one of those and see what that tells us about our covenant relationship with Yeshua, too. In um, the first one, the thing he promises her is basically himself, like his presence, that he will be with her. Um, he says, I basically, I will go with you. I will send the angel of my presence to go with you to the land of Israel. I'll go with you through the wilderness, specifically. Um, can you think of anything Yeshua said that would parallel that concept of promising his presence, that he would be with her? Yeah, look, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Some of his last words. Well, those are words of covenant. That's, a, that's like a covenant promise. Yeah. Um, on a practical marital level, something that I get out of that for my marriage relationship is like, there will be wildernesses, there will be hard times, just like Israel had to go through a wilderness to get to Canaan, and Israel had to engage with giants and like severe difficulties to take what was hers. And God said, I'm going to be with you through that. I'm going to go with you through that. So like when, let's say my spouse, if she goes through hard times, I get to be there with her. I get to go with her through the hard times. And it's really been hitting me lately how like it always starts with my heart. 
So like going with my spouse through hard times doesn't start with me physically being there, it starts with my heart. And it's like, I can tell, I can tell when the compass of my heart is one degree off from the true north of our love, if I could put it that way. Like you can tell, it's like being, staying with your spouse doesn't start with the physical side, it starts with your heart. How close is your heart to your spouse? Is, has your heart drifted one inch or two inches from your spouse? And if it has, like, don't tolerate that. You know, like, be hard on that. Be, uh, be, like, fiercely devoted and be like, no, like, my heart, I feel like my heart's drifting from me. I'm going to fight that and I'm going to do everything I can to stay close to my heart. Because that's where it starts. When, like, when a couple separates or moves out and gets different places, that's just, that's an expression of something that happened a long time ago in their hearts. So that's the first thing we can, uh, we can see in these promises. Um, number two... God promises Israel his protection to keep her safe. He says, I'll guard you on the way. Can you think of any promises that the master made to his disciples along those lines of his protection or keeping them safe? I have a couple of them. Um, When Yeshua sent out the 12 and the 70, one of the things that's recorded in the Gospel of Luke, he said is, not a hair of your heads will perish. He said, Evil will by no means harm you, but you're going to be the one trampling on, like, Satan's head as pictured by snakes and scorpions. That's one of the things he said. He was basically promising them his protection as they fulfilled the mission. No one was going to assassinate them on that journey. Um, There's another place in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, where Yeshua was using the analogy of, like, how a shepherd watches out for a sheep and leads them. And he said, my sheep are in my hand. And no one's going to snatch them out of my hand. That was like an expression of his, uh, his protection. I also think about John 17 where he was talking to Abba, to the father. And uh, he said, not one of them perished except for the son of perdition. He said, I was, the whole time that they were with me, I was like, I was guarding them by your word. So you can definitely hear like this protective side to Yeshua where, he, uh, where he's there to uh, watch out for us and, and keep us safe. Actually, I think it's kind of ironic because the other side of the equation is he was really upfront about being like, you may die a premature, bloody, violent death. Like, that, that doesn't sound like protection, actually, does it? If you follow me, there's a good chance that you are going to die a violent death at an early age. And just, just be ready for that. It's like no protection there. Or maybe there was on a deeper level. Because uh, from the sound of the Master's words, like, your physical death is one thing, spiritual death is another thing. Um, on, on, a, on a practical level, like something we can learn um, in the marriage relationship from this, is like, let's say, of course, you would take a bullet for your spouse, right? There's someone there with a gun, you're going to jump in front. Let's say for me, I'll jump in front and I'll take the bullet for my wife, of course. I mean, what husband wouldn't, would like say, no, nah, I wouldn't do that. Get her in front of me, use her as a human shield. I mean, no husband would do that. I hope. But again, that's the physical side, right? What about the heart side? What does it look like to guard your spouse's heart? What does it look like to protect your spouse emotionally? So a question simply is like, does your spouse feel safe with you? Does your spouse feel, feel comfortable sharing his or her deepest feelings with you? Their fears, maybe even their struggles or their dysfunction or pain? Or is your spouse hesitant to do that because you may criticize or do something less than empathize, care, express acceptance? That's a big question. I mean, I'm still relatively newly married. I've been married a little under five years. I'm still totally learning about this. I'm learning about guarding my wife's heart, 
um, being a safe person where she can share her deepest feelings with me and I'm just going to hear her out and love her and accept her instead of trying to fix her or um, like criti criticize her. And I do that. I totally do that. And it's so... Sometimes I'm such a jerk. And I'm learning, right? So this is something that really speaks to me. Um, number three, God promises Israel his loyalty, that he would be on her side. He did kind of use some conditional terms. Like he said, I'm going to be an enemy to your enemies. And like the people who trouble you, I'm going to trouble them. I like that language. You should put that in marriage, like in the marriage vows or something. I will trouble your troublers. Something like that. But um, but he, he, does, he does go on to say, like, but you have to choose me. I don't want you going after other gods, running around after other gods, because that's not going to go well for you then, eh? But you can definitely hear God saying, I'm going to take your side, I'm going to be loyal to you, and uh, your enemies, I'm going to take serious issue with those, with those guys also. Um, what, would that, uh, what would be an example of this from Yeshua's words to his bride? Are there any places where he expresses his loyalty to his bride in a covenant context? Huh, yeah, when he said he was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Right, that's an example of him expressing loyalty, firstly, to the covenant people of Israel, eh? Yep, totally. When he said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. It's like, I'm not going to forsake you and go over to the other side. <laughs> right, yeah, he said, greater love is known than this, that he laid down his life for his friend. He was, he was calling them friends at that point, too, then, yeah. Well, yeah, Yeshua, he totally took a bullet for his guys. Wow. I never thought of it like that. Well, he took a couple of nails is more like it. It's probably more painful than just getting mowed down on the spot. Okay. Okay, how about on a, on a practical marriage level? What is something we can learn from that? Something we, really simple we learn from that is like, if your spouse is in any kind of dispute or argument, take your spouse's side. Your spouse needs to know that like, you, you're, you're backing them and you're supporting them. So let's say in a child-rearing situation, if you've got a kid and your kid is trying to get between you and your spouse and get you to agree with them and not with your spouse, you want to side with your spouse. <laughs> or let's say in relationship with your family or your spouse's family, you definitely want to, you want to be one. You want to have a united front. You want to be agreed in your decisions and how you come across. Uh, that would be another example. If your spouse has some kind of dispute with a coworker, or if your spouse has some issues that he or she is working through with someone in your faith community, these are all examples where your spouse needs to know, I'm there for you. I'm your friend. I'm on your side. I'm backing you. I've been in situations, work kind of situations sometimes, where being uh, a man most of the time where he has spoken badly about his spouse, and I've always just kind of said, well, I said, I have a really good life and just talk good about it. And it kind of shuts down the negative talk about a spouse. And, uh, and then I've also been in the odd situation where Chris says, man, if it wasn't for my, my wife, I'd be a total mess. She is so good. And, I, and then I, in those situations, I say, I'm so glad to hear that somebody speaks good about their spouse because there's so much negativity about marriage and stuff like that. Mm. If it's the right person and you're committed to God, both of you, it's that's awesome way to like counter evil with good hey or like negativity with positivity hmm, totally um, fourth thing that Yahweh promises Israel is his leadership that he would lovingly lead Israel he says that basically when he says I will bring you to the land of Canaan 
He's saying, I'm, I'm going to be your leader. I'm going to give you that direction uh, that you need. Can you think of any, any places where Yeshua offers or promises something similar to his covenant community? Yeah, that's right. He said, it's better for you to go that I go so that I can send you the Spirit and he will guide you. Totally. It's like him saying, I will be guiding you through my Spirit. Yeah. Um, in John 10, when he's talking about his disciples using the analogy of sheep, he also says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. I mean, I guess the whole concept of calling someone to follow you implies I'm going somewhere and I'm offering you, like, trustworthy leadership. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, how would this work out in a marriage relationship? The whole concept of giving leadership. Um, I believe that the best leaders are first the best followers. So if you want to, let's say me, in my relationship, if I want to offer quality leadership to my home, if I want to give good guidance to my family in terms of where we're going, my job, firstly, is to be the best follower of God that I can be. Because otherwise I'm just going in circles or I'm leading for the sake of leading, which usually results in stupid tyranny and authoritarianism and a lot of other things. Really, like when you just lead for the sake of leading, you're, you're, you're usually dumb. Um, but if, you are, if, you are, if your leading comes from following God, if you're passionately following God, if you have like a strong commitment to obey God and to accomplish the mission that he's given you, your, your, your family is going to be like, wow, like, you're passionate and you're going somewhere. And it's not a matter of like coercion, like, oh, I've got to obey. Oh, I have to submit. Oh, this is brutal. It's like, I respect this person. This person is passionate. I want to go where this person is going. And, and I pray that every one of us can be like that. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I, for me as a husband, I would definitely see that. I think that applies for wives too. Like, wives are massive influences on their husbands. It's like, if the husband is the, you know, the allegorical head, then the wife is the allegorical neck that holds the head up and turns the head wherever, wherever, you know? Like, that's how it is for me anyway. And um, so it's like, a wife has massive influence on her husband and her children. So, like, ladies, for you, as you passionately follow God, as you commit to accomplish the mission that he has given you, as you pray for your family, like you are strongly influencing your family. You are a leader in your family. I believe in a very biblical way. And, um, and, and that's a good thing. Right, the midwives in Exodus 1. Totally, they saved male children. Yeah. And think about this too with leadership. Like, in leadership, the, okay, the, the scriptural concept of leadership is the best servant is the best leader. So the better you serve the people in your life, the greater the leader you are. And so in, in, a, in a marriage relationship, like sometimes there, maybe there's some bickering about who's going to be the leader, who is going to be the head of the family, or whatever. And you know, there is the whole conversation about, do you want to go more complementarian, where the wife compliments her husband, and the husband is more the head of the home? Or are you more egalitarian, where you think they're both equal, and all of that stuff? But just, I, I think this whole teaching that Yeshua gave about the best leader is the best servant, it sideswipes all that stuff. So he said, if you want to be a leader, just serve. Just shut up, and just serve. And like, help people in the way they need it. 
And you know, like I, I'm complementary, and so I, I believe that. I believe that God has called me to serve my family in, in leadership and to hear Yeshua's voice for, for our family and to give that kind of direction. Uh, I don't know where you guys are all at, but that's, that's my personal position. But I think this whole concept of being the best servant, it transcends that whole complementarian versus egalitarian um, debate. So that's something we learned from, uh, from this Parsha. Um, fifth thing God promises Israel is his provision that he would supply for their physical needs. He says, I'll bless your bread and your water. That presupposes that there will be bread and water, of course. And there are other passages where he goes on to more explicitly state that he will provide for his people physically. Um, can you think of anything that Yeshua said that would be along those lines of, I will provide for you physically? Yeah, right? That's the, that's the end of Matthew 6, where he says, don't worry about what you're going to wear and what you're going to eat because your father's he's taking care of you. Cool, I hadn't thought about that one. That's excellent. I think to the, um, to the last point, and in this one, about servanthood and provision, the last thing Jesus did before they had the supper is he washed the disciples' feet. And he said, do you understand what I've done? Because Jesus, or Peter wasn't even going to let him. And Peter said, you, said I do, you don't let me do this. You have no part with me. And Peter said, wash everything. Jesus said, no, just your feet. It's good. Um, because Jesus was teaching servanthood right there. That's the last thing he did before he went to the cross. And then later on, uh, it's in one of the epistles, he says, women, women are supposed to submit, love their husbands, submit to them. He doesn't actually say love them even. He says submit to their husbands. But the husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. What did Christ do to the church? He served the church. He provided for the church. He protected the church. Um, the husband is called to serve and to give everything. And I think mm. any wife that truly understands and knows that her husband and even the children in that family know that their their father and and the wife knows that her husband will do what put himself last in every situation for their good. I don't, most families would run really, really well. There's a lot of selfish husbands out there mm. that are very self-serving. And they'll use wife submit as a, I get to make all the decisions, but they make the decisions selfishly, and that's where problems are created. Right. I wonder if it doesn't boil down to trust. Like if a man, if a family sees that the, 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 the man is there to serve them humbly and to care about them and to love them, like they're going to trust him. They're gonna, I believe they're going to trust his, his direction and leadership, yeah. It's a big, uh, it's a big job. Um, another, another um, instance that I thought about where Yeshua physically provided for his disciples is um, it's in the Gospel of Luke. It's like his last night with the disciples before uh, his crucifixion. And he says, when I sent you out without money belt, bag, and sandals, you didn't lack anything, did you? Which is really cool because this was like distance provision. Like these guys were on the road. They were traveling two by two. And they didn't lack anything. Even when they went with like no wallet, no credit card, um, you know, kind of name it, whatever it would be like today. Yeshua was like, Yeshua in, in tandem with his father was watching out for them and, and caring for them. So, um, somewhere at the end of Luke's gospel. I don't have, I don't have all of the uh, references for these. Yeah, <laughs> no kidding, eh? <laughs> what? Oh yeah, twice he supplied with the loaves and fishes. That's for like thousands of people. Oh, that's an awesome example of covenant provision, yeah. Tax 
Oh yeah, the taxes in the fish's mouth? Man, I still, I still want a miracle like that one. Really, like, could you imagine if like, he was like, okay, take your 308. Uh, there's going to be a deer about two miles north and then three miles east on the grid. Shoot it, and uh, you'll find a wad of bills in its mouth. <laughs> that would be awesome. Man, I guess, oh, assuming it would be hunting season, but... Wow, that's a cool story, yeah. Um, the sixth thing that God promises Israel is his care. He says, no one among you will be sick or uh, barren or miscarry. And uh, you totally see that caring heart in Yeshua. I mean, he came to his people to heal his people. He healed thousands or maybe tens of thousands of people. It was physical care. And uh, what did he say? before he lifted off, he said, these are one of the signs that are going to follow those who believe in my name. You lay hands on the sick and they will recover. You lay hands on each other and I will come through for you and heal that person. So he definitely promises uh, physical care in, in that regard. Right. 40 years and their clothes didn't wear out in the desert and they weren't sick, right? That would mean, okay, like what, it's 2012, so 40 years ago, what would that put us at? 1972? Can you imagine wearing the same clothes since 1972? Like, no kidding. Like this whole ragtag nation would be coming to Canaan and everybody would be like, they look like a bunch of hippies. They've all got bell bottoms on. Like really, hey? And like the guys with suits, like wow, an early 1970s suit. I don't know, that alone would give you some military clout. Everyone would be laughing so hard you could just go kill them. But um, so that would probably be... Yeah, their clothes weren't made in China then, right? There's a, there's a Jewish tradition, and I don't know if it's true or not, that says that like for the kids, their clothes and their shoes actually grew with them. It doesn't say in the Bible, but that's what Jewish tradition says. That would be kind of neat too, hey? Can you imagine how much money you'd save? like your shoes grew with you all the way till you're an adult? Like you really want to have a good pair of shoes then. Right. So anyway, that, that's pretty neat. Um, what would be a practical application to that marriage? Like, okay, um, I've been healthier this winter than I've been for several winters. Like, I've kind of had this track record of working too hard and sleeping too little in the winter and then getting really sick and just being totally, like, defunct. And there was a couple, couple of years ago, like, I got so sick, I was like, really feverish and almost delirious and I was just totally like out of it. And I just lay on the couch with all these blankets on me and Genevieve like literally spoon-fed me. I couldn't even eat. She spoon-fed me. So I don't know, maybe that would be an example of like physically caring for a spouse. Or uh, we're, we're reading a book that just recently came out by Mark and Drace Gris Driscoll um, called Real Marriage and uh, Mark Driscoll talks about his wife's uncle who um, and um, his wife's uncle, his wife developed Alzheimer's and had to be put into like a care home or whatever. And he still went to her every day and sat with her for hours. Like long after she mentally was gone, she did not recognize him. She had no idea who he was or that they were married or anything. And he still went there every day and sat with her for hours and just expressed physical care. Wow. And it's like, that's, like, that's Yeshua in us. Like, seriously, there are times when I am so mentally stupid, like, when I am just acting insanely, like, morally, when, like, I deny the master, when I totally disobey him, when I behave like I have spiritual Alzheimer's, and, like, he's still hung in there for me. He's, he hasn't given up on me. He's kept knocking on the door, and he's gone through to me, hey? So I, I, I totally see how uh, Yeshua expresses that same covenant devotion. And then the, uh, the seventh thing that... Um, 
Yahweh promises Israel is a home. It's kind of neat. He says, I'm going to bring you into this land. This, these are, this is going to be the boundaries of your land. It's kind of like the guy saying, like, I'm going to get you this home. Let's go look at a real estate market. Here's a really nice home. Big yard. This is the place I'm going to get for you. Um, right at the beginning of uh, that proposal and that, uh, that marriage relationship. Can you think of anything that Yeshua said that kind of paralleled promising his disciples a home? Yeah. Here, I'll read that passage for you. He said, In my Father's house are many dwelling places, many homes. If it weren't so, I would have told you, because I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, so that where I am, you can be also. Wow. He promised his disciples like a long-term home. Yeah, that's true. Yeshua said, if you, if you give up your home or your farm or your land or whatever for my cause, you're going to have a hundred times as much in this life, along with persecution. Yeah. Um, I think like the practical application of that in marriage is, you know, I mean, I, I can actually think about two levels. Like on the physical level, you know, let's say me as a husband providing for my wife and lining up a place somewhere that hopefully she likes. Um, but I can totally see how Genevieve does that actually too in our relationship because she makes our house a home. Like just the way she runs our household, her gracious presence, um, the way she even, let's say on Friday, she prepares for Shabbat, she gets uh, Shabbat stuff ready so we can have a nice candlelit dinner every Friday evening. That's totally providing, like making a house into a home. Oh, I'm kind of thinking out loud here. I, some of the stuff is just off my notes, but it's kind of neat how that works. So maybe that's a practical application. Um, so, so far we've looked at proposal, promises, and the, the third thing we'll look at is there are words exchanged when two parties enter into a blood covenant, and those words are put in writing. They're written down. In um, Exodus 24, verse 8, we read this. 24, verse 8. So Moshe took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which Yahweh has made with you in accordance with what? All these words. So did you get that? He said, this covenant that you're entering into is in accordance with all these words. So there's this thing about words exchanged in a relationship that are at the very core of covenant, entering into a covenant. And uh, you can see that, for instance, when the Holy One proposed to Israel, those were words exchanged. When Israel accepted the proposal and she said, yes, everything that you say I will do, those were words exchanged back. Um, these promises that he expressed through his prophet, those were words exchanged between him and Israel. If you look at the relationship between Yeshua and his Talmudim, his disciples, you totally see that too. You know, when he says things like, follow me or take this cup, those are words offered. And uh, if you look at the relationship between Yeshua and his disciples, it definitely wasn't a one-way conversation. It was a monologue. Like Yeshua's disciples, they lived with the guy. Like, they were free to ask him questions anytime something popped into their minds. And some of them were kind of stupid questions. But he answered their questions. He met them where they were at. It was, it was definitely a, uh, it was a dialogue, not a monologue. And you can, you can totally see how, like, Yeshua's relationship with his disciples largely consisted of an ongoing conversation. Could it be that your relationship with the Master also largely consists of an ongoing conversation with him? Could it be that that's one of those things that's at the, the heart of discipleship? 
not a monologue, him talking to you all the time, or you, or you talking to him all the time, but a two-way thing, a give and take. Because he's still around, he's still accessible, we can still have those conversations with him. And I, I think about that like on a, on a love level between two human beings, and I, I totally see that. Like, have you ever had a conversation with someone where like you ended up talking half the night away or all night long? And like you just love talking with that person. It was like the conversation developed a, a life of its own. You didn't want to stop. It's like you couldn't stop and you end up talking half the night away or, or like talking until morning light, that kind of thing. That's like a picture of how words exchange. They're at the heart of love. Like I think large, love largely consists of like this ongoing conversation between two people. And then of course like when you make a marriage covenant, that's like the pinnacle of words publicly exchanged, eh? Like your marriage vows that you say publicly on your wedding day. That is like, that's the pinnacle of words exchanged. You could say it's like the, uh, the apex of the conversation between two lovers on one hand. And on the other hand, it's like just the beginning of the conversation. Like everything after the marriage vows is like, the conversation has gone to a, a new level for sure. That's a great example, yeah, when someone is immersed in the master's name, like when a Muslim is baptized, they make a public declaration of their faith. That's like marriage vows, hey? Like a public exchange of words. And yeah, there are often severe repercussions for that because like it's very clear this person is entering into a covenant relationship with a deity other than Allah, for instance. Yeah, great example. A couple of practical applications like in a marriage relationship, like conversation sometimes just happens, but it often doesn't just happen. Generally, if you want to have like a real heart-to-heart with somebody, you might have the occasional one, but you usually have to be intentional about it. Um, generally, in conversation, the best way to have a conversation is to express care for the other person and interest for them by asking questions about what they're interested in, what they're passionate, what's going on in their life. And uh, maybe that would be a really practical thing, you know? It's like, who's going to be the first one to start the conversation and say, how was your day? Or like, how have you been doing lately? How's your heart been? What are you thinking about? That kind of thing. Um, Did you notice that God took Israel into the wilderness where there are no distractions to have that conversation with her? Practical application, like, make time for, like, loving conversations. Like, take the phone off the hook. uh, Put your iPod away. Turn off the cell phone. Like, seriously, if your spouse sees you take the phone off the hook or turn off your phone, your spouse would be like, wow, this person really cares about me. This person really wants to hear what I have to say. Seriously, sometimes those little gestures, can be, they can say so much. So that's a practical application. Yeah, you're right. I'll, I'll repeat that again for the, our live streaming friends. But yeah, Yeshua, several times he took his disciples away to a, a quiet place or to somewhere solitary where it was just them and him. And they had quality time and they had some very deep conversations. Like um, when he said, who do people say that I am and who do you say that I am? They were at the foot of Mount Hermon there and they were off by themselves, yeah. Wow. And then he started telling them about how he was going to go to Jerusalem. That was some deep stuff on his heart. Like, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be brutally murdered. Yeah, that was in the context of like, you know, making time for that talk. I love that. Because Yeshua was so busy, eh? Like really, if anybody would have an excuse to like just stay home or just go to work and not to like take a drive in the truck out to the bush for half a day it would have been Yeshua but he still made time to like sneak off and just go to the country or get in the wilderness areas and pray yeah great example 
Yeah, and you know the last thing, maybe a practical application about conversations is often like creating a, a, a special context for conversation will make it memorable. So if you, okay, a great example is proposing, right? Like generally, often a guy will try and find a really special occasion to propose or a memorable location or something like that. And we can totally do that, like not just when you propose, but regularly, you know? That's what like taking someone out on a date is all about and that kind of thing. Um, so that was the first half of this one, like those words that are exchanged, whereby a relationship develops and whereby people enter into a covenant. The other half of it is writing it down. In Exodus chapter 24, verses 4 and 7, I'll read them to you, verse 4, it says, Moses wrote down all the words of Yahweh. Then in verse 7 it says, Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that Yahweh has spoken we will do, and we will listen. So you see that? There were these, these words exchanged and then they were, they were committed to writing. Um, the Hebrew word for a, uh, the marriage vows when they're written down, for like the marriage document, it's called a ketubah. Everybody say ketubah. And it's spelled K-E-T-U-B-A-H. And the root of it is the Hebrew verb ketav, which simply means to write. So ketav is to write, and a ketubah is something that's written. Essentially, it's a document. Um, in the Hebrew world, for instance, in Genevieve's and my, um, when we entered into a marriage covenant with each other at the betrothal ceremony, we exchanged our you know, uh, words of covenant, our marriage vows, and uh, we wrote those down on a really beautiful artistic document. And we framed it, and it hangs over our bed. And uh, that's something that we did, because it's, well, because it's tradition and because it's very meaningful, but also because that was God's idea. God proposed, God made promises, there were words exchanged when he entered into covenant, and then he had them put into writing. For his sake, probably not, because God doesn't forget stuff. For Israel's sake, oh yeah, for sure. Um, what would you say the words of the covenant between Yeshua and us would be, in terms of like what, what's being written down or recorded. What's the ketubah between Yeshua and, and us? Ten Commandments? Yeah, the scriptures? Torah, the Holy Spirit? Is that? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, the Gospels, Revelation, with the promise of the marriage supper of the Lamb. If you love me, I'll keep my commandments. Yeah, I think, I, frankly, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know exactly, like, if you were to say, technically, this is what the ketubah is between Yeshua and us. Um, maybe you could say it's the red letters, you know, in, in the Gospels and in the book of Revelation. Um, maybe you could say it's the writings of Yeshua's apostles in general. Maybe you could say it's the scriptures in their entirety from Genesis to Revelation. I think I would probably lean towards saying the scriptures in their entirety. Because, um... Well, well, look, well, let's look into this for a second. Um, the Hebrew term for new covenant, like we have, we have been brought into a new covenant relationship with God through the shed blood of Messiah, right? The Hebrew term for new covenant is brit, chadashah. So a covenant is a brit, B-R-I-T, and chadashah means new. Now, here's the thing. The Hebrew word for new, chadashah, sometimes means something that is brand spanking new, it just hot off the press or just came off the assembly line or whatever. Like, you'll see that in Israel. Um, that's the word for, like, let's say, uh, you know those little signs, those little, like, puffy star signs that say, new, 
in English, they have those in Israel, right? And it'll say, Chadash. It's the same word. So, I mean, it's a word that's used in Israel today. So there is this side to the word that means it's brand spanking new. There's this other side, though, that means it's a re something that's renewed. Like the moon, when that sliver of the moon reappears in the western sky once a month on the lunar cycle, we call that the new moon. In Hebrew, we call that, can anybody tell me? Rosh Chodesh. Can you hear that word Chodesh? It's, it's the same root as Chadesha, new. And uh, is that a new moon in the sky? Like, does the moon disappear and rematerialize? No, it's the same moon, but it's, it's like the cycle that's being renewed, eh? So I, I believe that both senses of these words really apply to the new covenant. God did say, I'm going to make a Brit Chadesha, a new covenant, and it will not be like the covenant that I made with your forefathers at Sinai. So this is a new covenant, and it is different. There are some fundamental differences in it between the covenant that was made in Moses' generation. On the other hand, though, I also believe that the previous covenants of God were renewed in the new covenant. For instance, God brought Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob into a covenant with himself in which he said, I'm going to give you the land of Israel forever. And Paul goes on to say, those promises were made to the seed who is Yeshua. So th those promises are going to be made good when Yeshua comes back and inherits the land of Israel forever. And who is going to inherit the land of Israel forever with Yeshua? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And everybody else who belongs to God. So can you, can you see that? Like there's this old covenant that God made with Abraham a long time ago, and he's making good on that covenant through Yeshua. He is fulfilling that covenant through the new covenant. Uh, I, would, I would see other examples of that also. Like in the covenant that God made through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 30, God promised that in the end of days, he would revive his people. He would bring them back to the land of Israel. He would grant them repentance. He would circumcise their hearts, which by the way is a new covenant thing that we experience in the new covenant. That's in Deuteronomy 30. Has God completely fulfilled those prophecies yet? No, he hasn't. There are many other prophecies that God made through the prophets of Israel in the Hebrew Bible that he has not fulfilled yet. And he will fulfill them. Will it be the Mosaic Covenant or will it be the New Covenant? I believe it will be both. Because God, what, what did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 1? Like, whatever the promises of God may be, they are yes and amen in who? Yeshua. Right? So, that's, um, it's my, my personal belief that all those previous covenants are still valid. They still stand. They still have a place and relevance. The covenant with Abraham, the covenant through Moses. I even believe that all believers are grafted into those covenants. Um, I'll give you two passages for why I believe that. Um, in Romans chapter 9, Paul listed the things that continued to belong to the nation of Israel, the physical Jewish people. One of them was the covenants of promise. Did you notice he didn't say the covenant as in the new covenant? He said covenants. So that means some of the previous covenants still belong to Israel. They still count. Um, in Ephesians chapter 2, he went on to say those covenants of promise, just like if you're from a Gentile background, there was a time when you were far away from God, you were like a hardcore blood-drinking pagan, and you have been brought near to God, you've been brought near to Messiah. He's also said you've been brought into the commonwealth of Israel, and you have been brought into the covenants of promise. So if someone, next time someone says to you like, no way, man, the new covenant is the only one that matters, just the New Testament, just say, Romans 9 and Ephesians 2, baby. 
because Romans 9 and Ephesians 2 suggest very strongly that those previous covenants still have a place, they're still relevant, they still fit in the big, into the big picture, and whether you're Jewish or Gentile, you're in the thing. That, that's my personal uh, belief. So, this is something cool too. What did God say he would do in the New Covenant experience through his Spirit? He said, I'm going to take the Torah, I'm going to take the Torah and I'm going to write it where? On your heart! He didn't say, I'm going to take the Torah and do away with it. He said, instead of it being an external thing, I'm going to internalize it inside of you so that you become that thing. That's you. So, in the New Covenant, God takes the previous covenants and he makes them real. He makes them alive. That's how I would understand it. So, you know, my personal belief is the Torah is part of the New Covenant ketubah that we have between Yeshua and and ourselves. Um, Give you a practical application about that. And uh, we can... can wrapped there. Practical application is just like God put those words of covenant down in writing, you can do that too as married couples. So like I, you know the concept of a paper trail, right? Uh, let's say if a, if a business has a paper trail, it's like they've done their accounting, they have the receipts, um, they have everything on paper with regards to transactions. I, I would suggest that as like in the marriage covenant relationship as lovers, you can develop like a burning paper trail. Like Stuff that's just burning with love. Um, emails to each other, messages or comments to each other on Facebook, uh, old-fashioned love letters. All of these things are like putting it in writing. They're like developing a burning paper trail. Um, there are some other things you can do too. Uh, a cool one would be every now and then, like go back and reread your marriage vows. Go back and look over those things. Um, that's like going back and reviewing the covenant, those words exchanged that were put into writing. Um, you could... Um, if you have like a collection of old love letters or things like that, kind of make a special place for them. Like when Genevieve and I were recording, I had a special folder where I put all of our email correspondence and it was like my special folder, right? A year or two ago, I, I went on this big hunt. It was really hard to find, but I got this really cool, beautiful box, kind of like a treasure box. And um, I was like, I want to keep all of our love letters and all of our, our uh, things that we've exchanged with each other. I want to keep them in there. So, you know, that would be an example of that maybe one way to kind of that whole put it in writing thing to, to, uh, to apply it. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.